Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Let's Talk About It. This is Susan Johnson, and I'm here with my co-host, Dennis O'Brien. And boy, do we have a fabulous show for you today. I am so excited because today we have people from the Connecticut Human Rights and Opportunities Commission. And right now we have Attorney Cheryl A. Sharp and also Anna Mitchell, who is the Outreach Coordinator for Bilingual Education. And this is going to be a great show and we're going to have lots and lots of information for everybody to listen to about what we should do when we find that there is an issue of discrimination. And we are going to talk about what they do and what their experiences are. Right, Dennis? Yes, Susan. I'm really excited about this because uh, it, is, it involves the law. And uh, I've been in the law for over 50 years now and uh, still doing it. And uh, very, uh, very uh, pleased to meet uh, Cheryl. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And and Mrs. Mitchell, of course. And and, uh, Mr. Mitchell is off camera like I am. He's here. I'm I'm not on camera now, but uh, I'm here. Right, Susan? You are here. That's right. And that's why everybody can hear you. And so this is wonderful. And uh, so Attorney Cheryl Sharp is uh, appointed as the Deputy Director of the State of Connecticut Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities. And uh, that was done in July 4th, 2014. And you were second in command of the oldest governmental civil rights agency in the nation. So tell us a little bit about that and how did that happen and what was your experience just before that occurred? I am so humbled and pleased to be here with you. Um, I, I love watching you work at our uh, oh. state legislature. Thank um, you. Thank you so I much. I appreciate all of the work that you do for our, our great state. Uh, the commission, like you said, is the oldest governmental civil rights agency in the nation. And what I was doing right before I became the deputy executive director is that I was in the legal department working on prosecuting uh, cases in a state court in a federal court at the state Supreme Court. Um, and so the law, uh, as you were passionate about the law, so am I. Uh, you've been at it for 50 years and I've been at it, at it for 30 years. And so uh, civil rights law enforcement is so important. Uh, discrimination is so harmful and really tests the uh, ends of our humanity. Uh, when an individual is discriminated against, treated differently because of some immutable trait that they have, some part of who they are as a human being, um, it's devastating, it's hurtful, and our agency was created to deal uh, with those issues. In addition to the uh, civil rights law enforcement, we do affirmative action uh, plans. We uh, enforce and review for uh, state agencies. Uh, we also do contract compliance, the enforcement of Uh, the contract compliance laws. And as you know, I'm sure the state of Connecticut spends hundreds of millions of dollars every year on contracting and public works contracts. And so we oversee the set-aside program for the state. We also do training and development and education and outreach. Um, Ergo, our uh, uh, outreach coordinator, uh, who is bilingual, Anna Mitchell, Anna Maria Mitchell, Um, And uh, so we crisscross the state trying to educate the public about their right to be treated fairly with uh, equality and sometimes with equity, right? So equality is treating people the same, like everyone wants to be treated the same. But sometimes people need uh, something a little different. If you're in a wheelchair, if you have no cutout to get onto the sidewalk, then you can't participate equally with everyone else. That's equity, mm-hmm. giving people what they need so that they can have this equal participation. So I know I've said a mouthful, no, but our agency great. does a lot. 
This is great. I think you've said a lot, and I think that, you know, I just want to go back to the ADA that was put into effect in the ni early 90s. And, uh, you know, when you mentioned the sidewalk, I have to mention that because I think that so many people had limitations before they had access to being able to move around out with a wheelchair uh, and making sure that under the ADA they had access to some type of equity so that they would be able to be treated in a work environment uh, or wherever that they'd have uh, access and to be able to perform those duties with just modifications in the working uh, system or in access outside in the sidewalk or onto the bus. That what my One of my most riveting cases in my entire career was a disability case. Yes. And it was an individual... Uh, he was a paraplegic. Um, he had been in an accident uh, because at some point he wasn't a paraplegic. And all he needed, he was the top performer in this company in Connecticut, top performer. All he needed was four bricks to be placed under a table so that he could work so it would be high enough so he could fit his wheelchair under it. The company wouldn't put the four bricks under the table for him to do his job. The other thing that he needed was an uh, accessible bathroom. Mm -hmm that the door needs to be moved over a foot, one foot, which may have cost 1200 bucks. Mm -hmm. the company wouldn't move the door over. So every day, this young man would have to, uh, he'd have to take apart his wheelchair to fit under the table, first of all, yeah. so that he could work to be the top performer. Then he had to put the wheelchair back together so that he could then get into an elevator and go home to use the bathroom because he could not use the bathroom at work. Wow. Again, when I think about humanity, how are we treating one another? How are we showing up in this world and treating one another? Because this young man who was so full of life and was an excellent hard worker was treated differently because of a, a mutable trait, something he couldn't help, right? Mm -hmm. The state of being a paraplegic. And it was such a minor thing that needed to happen. Mm -hmm. But humanity mm -hmm. left through the back door. Right. And they call that in a reasonable accommodation to address uh, some, uh, you know, disability. That's what the term of art is. And, and that is something that we're very, very focused on to try and make sure people have that access to a reasonable accommodation. And that is one of the great things that the Connecticut uh, Commission on Human Rights does. And uh, that is something that is fabulous. I just want to move over a little bit to uh, Anna, Anna Maria Mitchell and as the Outreach Coordinator for Bilingual Education. And as uh, I'm sure you're aware, uh, Wyndham has the highest percentage of students that have a home language that isn't English. And it's one of the things that we want to make sure that everybody has uh, uh, you know, good access to the right kind of uh, training. We do have the, uh, one of the only dual language schools in the state. Uh, so we are really uh, focused on these things, and we've expanded uh, access to dual language school, schooling because it's my understanding from the work that I've done on this issue uh, that we need to make sure dual language opportunities are there in school systems where students have a home language that is in English. And so tell us a little bit about that. And I, I have to say also I'm very proud that we did pass the uh, civil rights uh, uh, accommodating uh, law for uh, students that uh, need uh, some type of bilingual education this uh, last session. No, and actually, thank you. It's a pleasure being here today. And what I have to say, coming from um, a Hispanic home and then being bussed out, I was one of those um, students who was bussed out to Farmington High School um, and having to transition from an Hispanic home where my mother only allowed 
us to speak Spanish and then being driven to where you weren't accepted and the chocolate bus was coming. Um, it's very, it's dear to my heart to push this issue to make sure that, like Cheryl was saying, equally, us sitting at the same table, right? Because we're all human. Right. And we all want to be heard. And if it's, and if you can't understand my language, then please provide something. I, at the age of eight, had to translate for my mother who was diagnosed for Parkinson. That is nothing. That is something that a child should not have to do. That should be mandated by an adult. So here at CHRO, it is my pleasure to go into these communities, speak about the programs, speak about what we do, and make sure that everyone understands that we are here. And right now, our, our um, pamphlets are actually brochures are actually now in Spanish and in English. The website is in Spanish and in English. And you know, us like anybody else, we're tweaking, but we're we're making the movements to make it better. And you know, as you saw in our equity, um, in our equity study, it's a big issue in there. And I think that everybody should be able to have access to these programs. But if we're not speaking their language, then well, we're in trouble. I'd say that's correct. I mean, one of the things that I was very, uh, when I first uh, got elected to this position as state rep here in Wyndham, is uh, I heard complaints from the State Department of Education saying, why do you have so many students that are in special education? So I went to some of the members of the Board of Education, and they said, well, uh, that's because we have so many students that I have a uh, home language that isn't English. And I said, well, gee, that doesn't sound like how the law should be operating and how special education should be working. And uh, there is uh, a lot of different, uh, you know, analysis that goes with that. But that's why I created the first task force uh, that we had in my first term. Uh, the speaker let me do it, uh, creating a task force on bilingual education, and I learned some some things about that. And then the next speaker came along, and he created a task force on bilingual education, and we're still working on how to do that. Now, we've uh, actually been good in terms of when students are successful with uh, English and another language, we have, uh, where they get they get credit now for that in the school right. system. So that that's one thing that we did a couple of years back. And now, of course, we have the, the rights, the civil rights, uh, for uh, students that um, have a home language that isn't English. And, it, and it's something that I think that, you know, other European countries seem to be able to manage it pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I think, you know, maybe uh, we should take a, a look at what they're doing in Europe. Mm -hmm. I know when Dennis and I were in Germany, uh, we, we talked to uh, the uh, mayor uh, of Bad Soden, and uh, he was excellent in English, but they started off, you know, teaching uh, their German in the in the preschool. Then they went to um, went to teaching um, uh, Latin first, and then they went from Latin to teaching English. So I think that that was one of the things that I thought, you know, what would we done in this country? We got rid of Latin. Uh, you who <laughs> that didn't seem to me too smart. But anyway, we digress, and I want to stay focused on civil rights. But uh, and so uh, one, of, one of the things also that you've been doing is you've uh, worked with the uh, pro racial profiling group. You want to tell us a little bit about that? I have. Um, we've been, I've been working with the racial profile group maybe for now about four years. And what happens is that we, there's actually a yearly report that comes out. It's, they have actually made a formula mm -hmm. which can um, detect the town that's actually um, not being compliant. 
So with that being said, we go into those towns and try to educate. If you do, if you do get stopped, we try to give them a little bit of the formula of what they're following so you're aware, you're well aware. Um, and, you know, we go town to town and visit these towns that are having a little issue. It seems to be working out great. We actually did one a couple of years ago in Willamette. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I've been familiar uh, working uh, on some of these issues here, and I think that we, we do a pretty, I think we do a very good job at this point of um, making sure that we're not doing racial profiling. And I know Dennis is on the uh, uh, first taxing district. You're going to be working with the police here. Yeah, I came out of retirement this year. I, I thought I was all done with, with being involved as a candidate for local office, but now I'm on the taxing district board of directors, which actually, in, in, in general, governs the... Uh, mostly the finances of the police and fire departments. And uh, I remember that event that, that took place here. We were there. It was a large crowd, and uh, you probably were there too. This this guy that, that does the studies is pretty good. I mean, he's... he's, he's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, he, he was is. there, and he gave yeah. quite a, a very, very, uh, you know, uh, great presentation. Great pre it was a little complicated, but not... Mm -hmm. You know, not if you just stayed with it and listened. And and he's, you know, he's done a lot of good. But with his, with his, with you know, he's created the the data that that you can you can base what you do on. I, I was just wondering, and if if you when you go to the towns, do you go visit the police departments as well? Um, I don't visit the police department. I actually do have a conversation, but I do visit the town. Okay, and I you see the people. Okay. I see the, the public, people, the, the public. community. Okay, right, because um, I think. Within society, we sit here, we know, we know the actual problem, we've studied the issue. Sure. But we don't go out with what we've actually found out, we don't share it with the community. Yeah. So if we're not sharing it with the community, we're still standing here, we're looking great, but the mm. community's still suffering. Yeah. Right. And I think it's important that the community gets to tell its story as opposed to other people telling the story for the community. Yeah. I've been a part of a CTRP3 since its inception. Mm. Um, I was one of the uh, first members as a part of that, uh, that board. Um, and uh, what we were uh, trying to accomplish, I think that uh, Ken uh, Barone and uh, Andrew... Uh, their group has done such a phenomenal job, and the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities has been involved along the way because fair and impartial policing, to me, is a basic right. Oh, it's sure. a human right. Yeah. Um, when you give um, individuals you know, firearms and then they're in a position of power, you want to make sure that the community that they're serving, the community that they're policing, understands their rights, duties, and responsibilities, and that the police department also understands their rights, duties, and responsibilities so that you don't have these negative interactions. And instead, you have community and police working together because... I think all, too often we forget that the police are a part of our community as well. And so it is that the community members and the police have to come together on a common ground to have an understanding of the fact that there is a need for policing, but that the policing should ha happen in a fair and impartial manner. Um, and we just we just held uh, one of the events that uh, Anna was talking about in uh, Glastonbury uh, recently. Um, and it's interesting to see what the perspective is uh, coming from the community and how it sometimes you know differs from that of the uh, police. But it's so important that we bear in mind that the community's perception of how they're being treated is just as important as what is actually happening in terms of treatment if we're going to start breaking
breaking down walls and breaking down barriers so that we can have fair and impartial policing that the, that the community believes is fair and impartial. Yeah, I think your agency, among, among others, and, and your agency uh, stands out in that regard, has done an awful lot to make that situation better. Obviously, there's a, a, still a big need for improvement. We know about, you know, hor horrible cases that have happened in, you know, in situations where police have stopped people and they, you know, the you know, tragedy ensues. And that is that is so sad. I mean, it is, it is so sad. And one of the things that you might want to talk to the public about when you go out there is just, you know, when, when you're stopped, you know, what to do. And, and, and that, I think that's vitally important because, uh, you know, you never know. As you say, the person, the person stopping you has a gun. And you know, and you, you know, and you never know. So uh, I, I, I really laud you for uh, you know what you've done and what you're doing. Uh, and this is a state in which um, you know there's a strong need for that. There's no question. I mean, it's, it's probably a stronger need for it in a lot of other places too. But uh, Connecticut is um, is an unusual state, and it is it is still to some extent, and something I've complained about for years in terms of education and otherwise. It is still segregated. Uh, very is, segregated yes. as to not only as to, as to race, but also as to income and, and, and you know, and financial ability. And that and that to me is, is bothersome. Uh, yes. I grew up in New Britain and, you know, New Britain, is, I've lived in. OK, there are seven towns uh, that are educationally speaking that are in the lowest uh, ERG uh, educational reference group that have the uh, largest uh, uh, gap uh, uh, achievement gaps. And and no, you can you can just easily uh, you can guess what seven what those seven towns are, and we're one of them here, and and of course Hartford is one, and and New Britain, my hometown, is one. So I've lived in almost my entire life in two of those towns. So, and one of the one of the great things about growing up in those towns is those towns were uh, New Britain when I was growing up was relatively integrated for the times. Okay, not like it is now, but it was relatively integrated, and, and it was a tremendous benefit for me as a white male to be in an integrated community and not growing up in an all white town like old Lyme, for example. I mean, it just made it such a, such a difference in my attitude towards other people. Cause you know, it's, it's, you, you, I, th I, I am, I am, uh, I, I got the opportunity to meet the great Kenneth Clark when Kenneth Clark, Kenneth Clark, Kenneth Clark who was uh, a witness for the plaintiffs in Brown versus board of education. He was a, he was a witness for, uh, uh, Plaintiffs in a case that I handled along with uh, the late, great Ray Norco, who was a, a director of the Legal Aid Society of Harford at the time, formerly worked out here in Willimantic. We sued the town of Manchester for racial discrimination when it dropped out of the CDBG program, 1979-1980. You were probably still in school. And, I was. And, 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 uh, well, I wasn't. I was, I, I was, but I was, I was still relatively a rookie. But fortunately for us, the Justice Department joined us in the case, and uh, I was able to meet Kenneth Clark and talk to him a lot about integration. And if, if there was ever a strong advocate for integration, it was Kenneth Clark. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah, and I so mean, and so I, I I just you know I think we have a long way to go in that regard. Yes, we do, and I think that one of the things that I want to say that I always say when we when Dennis and I get into this conversation <laughs> is the fact that the schools that are in the lowest categories were the schools that have been chronically underfunded since Weicker uh, was the governor and stopped. Uh, you know, making sure the education cost sharing grant was equalizing the cost of schools all throughout the uh, state of Connecticut uh, through the spending cap, which will be something I'll be working on shortly. 
but we'll we'll save that for another time. And, and 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 so so we have that situation where we've had underfunded those areas, and I had people say, "But look at all the money!" But then you have to say, "Well, look at all the students, <laughs> because the students need those resources, and more so than ever, uh, because of the requirements as we get uh, on and understanding and making more requirements for students for education." So. Uh, with that said, I know that we're running down and we're going to take a break. And uh, Already? Yes, already. Wow, time, Boy, flies. time flies. <laughs> but I'm Susan Johnson. I'm here with my co-host, Dennis O'Brien, and we are here. We are thrilled to be here with Attorney Cheryl Sharp, uh, the Deputy Director of the State of Connecticut's Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities, and Anna Mitchell, the uh, Outreach Coordinator uh, for Bilingual Education throughout the state of Connecticut. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, it's Dennis O'Brien. You might think I'm... <laughs> Out in the hallway or something, but I'm, I'm, I am here. I'm off camera, but I'm here. And I'm here with uh, my co-host, uh, the wonderful state representative, Attorney Susan Johnson, and um, Anna Marie, Anna Maria? Anna Marie. Anna Marie Mitchell, okay, who is the uh, outreach coordinator for... Uh, Commission on Human Rights. Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities, and Cheryl Sharp, who is the uh, deputy director of the uh, Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities, a former colleague of the great Charlie Critch, who everybody in this town knows. Yes, they uh, do. I'm sure you work together on a lot of uh, cases, and, and uh, we can talk about that some other time, maybe. But Yes. I, I, okay. But in, in Hi, Charlie. Yeah, anyway, Charlie will, I'm sure Charlie will be listening. Anyway, uh, we're lo so glad to have you here. We had a great uh, discussion the first half of the show, and now, Susan, take it away. All right. Well, here we are. We're, I, you know, one of the things that is... Uh, uh, something that we were just talking about as we went off the air is the idea that because the state has uh, limited access to a social safety net, because they don't provide anything really to speak of with, re with regard to housing for people with behavioral health conditions, uh, they've actually closed down mental health facilities and, and put people with behavioral health disorders in prisons, that we have shifted uh, the duties of all these different programs onto our educators and onto our police. And this is a very unfair thing that the state has done to the police and to our educators. And I, we were just getting doing, talking about that. So I just didn't know if you went to pick up a little bit on that and the impact that that has in terms of how we deal and talk to our police and how we deal and make sure we have equitable access to educational opportunities for our students. Sure. You know, training is necessary. So uh, police, they have a difficult job. And, and like I said earlier, they, they are a part of our community. Uh, and so we have to make sure that proper training is done. There needs to be uh, training uh, to deal with uh, deaf and hearing impaired individuals when there's police contact. There needs to be training to deal with individuals who are speaking other languages, languages other than English. There needs to be translation sometimes. And it shouldn't be a little child. It shouldn't be the you know six or seven-year-old of the parents who are about to, to get into some trouble. It, it needs to be that these, uh, that resources are provided to police departments, are provided to schools, so that that uh, translation uh, service is available. Um, it, it's, it's so critical to, to have that. Um, we, we were talking about a program that we have at the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities, and it's called Connecticut Kids Court Academy. It's not too late to register. It's a free program. Um, it is a program available to any student who is in fifth through 12th grade. We meet virtually uh, through Teams. 
And uh, we have some students from your area. We have, a, 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 I believe, a couple of students from Willimantic, actually. We've had students from Wyndham. We've had students from uh, Norwich uh, uh, Free Academy. Uh, so there is an opportunity for students to meet uh, judges, attorneys, social rights, um, civil rights advocates, and uh, social justice advocates. And so we encourage students to go to our website, ct.gov backslash CHRO and look for Connecticut Kids Court Academy and sign up and register uh, because, like I said, it's free and it's a wonderful opportunity to get exposure to the law. Um, this, I, session, this session will be coming up February 13th. We will start up. It's every other Tuesday. Online. One hour. 345 to 445. All right. And I, I also said that the, the legislature... Uh, and legislators have a very uh, difficult job because there are so many issues and there is a finite amount of funding to fund these issues. And we have to decide as a community, right, as a state, how do we want to use the limited number of funds? Uh, do we want to use them to incarcerate individuals or do we want to use them to educate train and provide opportunities for individuals we talked about segregation um, and there are many pockets of segregation throughout the state uh, and then if you opportunity map the state meaning where are the most opportunities it does not generally end up on the map in areas where there is a great deal of segregation so we have to look at our communities and think about how we can empower the individuals in our communities. You earlier talked about the seven uh, places in the state that um, there were achievement gaps or the achievement gaps were the highest. Well, I come from one of those cities as well. I was born and raised in Hartford, as was um, Anna, and I was uh, born and raised in the North End. It doesn't mean that you don't have potential there. There's a lot. I came out of there. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of potential there. It's how are we going to use our resources to access those students who believe in themselves, or we can put, we can breathe some life into those young people so that they believe in themselves and they have some hope and that they want to accomplish. But it takes resources. You can't skimp on the resources. You have to mm -hmm. make sure that the resources are providing, that are being provided, are the resources that are needed as opposed to just saying, oh, here's some resources. Find out what the community needs. What do those young people need to be successful? So that's at, at the CHRO, we try to create programs that would address the needs of those young people. And you know how we find out what the young people need? Do you, guess what we do? You ask them. We ask them because that's what's important. Yeah, I, that's excellent. I passed that one. Yeah, all right. I that, is, the that, that, is, that is really excellent. I got point. that and one then, right, and folks. That is, and that is one of the things that we really work at when we have hearings in the Education Committee uh, on, on education to see what people are coming. Now, part of the problem is uh, we, we have proposed information uh, and bills, and we always have a hearing on everything. But we really uh, need to hear from people, and now we're doing a lot of our hearings virtually. So this is something maybe we can start making sure people know. So maybe you don't have to spend the whole day at the Capitol uh, waiting to speak. But if you sign up for these things, if you take a look at, say, what the Education Committee is hearing uh, that particular day or during session, uh, you know, you'll be able to put yourself uh, in that queue and uh, be called on and, and uh, provide that. Or uh, even if you can't uh, provide any kind of uh, information verbally, and of course we always want it in writing even if you're speaking verbally, but you can always write a letter um, to the committee. And we take a look at all the letters. We get lots of letters. And when you're on that committee, we take a look at them 
and we take a look to see what people are writing to us so we can know what's what's coming from the community. So these are things that uh, we need to understand and make sure we get that information out to people. Uh, one of the things, too, I wanted to check in with you on is the Fair Housing Commission because that is one of the things that uh, Dennis has been really uh, interested in uh, when he was at Legal Services. He was doing housing litigation. But uh, we have, we because of the segregation in our state, because of the zoning issues in our state, because of all the things that we have a difficulty with, a, sta a town like Wyndham, we have more uh, subsidized housing and more um, affordable housing on a per capita base than anywhere else in the state ex uh, except for Hartford. Uh, so, but when we look at our surrounding towns, we don't have that. We provide all this. We provide three homeless uh, shelters, too. Domestic violence shelter, a free shelter in the uh, Holy Family Shelter. We provide all these things. The surrounding towns don't do that. You want to talk a little bit about what fair housing is and how we're going to be able to try and break through some of these, uh, these barriers uh, to resources and access. I mean, we only have 4.3 square miles here in Willimantic where most of the housing is. Sure. Uh, the, the bottom line is that the Connecticut general statutes prohibit discrimination in housing. So when an individual attempts to get uh, housing, we, we have found and we have complaints of discrimination filed with us where the uh, uh, potential tenant is saying, I, I've gone to look at all of these apartments, but I keep being denied the opportunity to rent. Connecticut has a uh, housing stock problem, right? We don't have enough housing that is affordable, that is in decent shape for the number of individuals who need to access that housing. So we have an access issue. And on top of having an access issue and a discrimination issue, you have some of the surrounding towns, the suburban towns, that do not want to have affordable housing because they don't want, quote unquote, those people in their communities or changing the face of their community, which to me is a mask of, for discrimination. Because when it, you say the face of the community or the character of the community, you're talking about the race and color and national origin. You don't want it to change. You don't want substantially to have your suburban town uh, be filled with people who look like me. You're on a real roll. I don't want to interrupt you, <laughs> but I got to point out that when, in that case, I, I mentioned that Kenneth Clark was involved in as an expert witness. That was the... That was the the key words that we focused on, that, that the certain people in, in the Manchester, not everybody, it was a minority, but it was a very vocal minority, did not want those people living in their town. And Kenneth Clark, you know, clued, clued us in. We didn't, he didn't need to clue us in on that one. We knew who he was talking about when he was talking about those people. He was talking about people from Hartford. Kenneth Clark said, no matter what they do, no matter what they do, Manchester will become integrated. It's only eight miles down the road. He was right. Manchester is very integrated, though, which yes. is wonderful, which is wonderful because it's a very good town. And uh, anyway, uh, you're making some excellent points. I, you know, I wish we could have you on for like three hours because there's so many <laughs> things. I would like to talk to you about some of the cases you've handled in court. Yes. But we don't, we don't have time for that because that would, I, I think oh, this is. Oh, because I have stories for you. Know, I, I bet you do. I, well, I have some stories. Yeah. I have some stories, too. But, but we could swap stories. But, but, I'll, but I, I, we want to hear the, the essence of this. We'll have, have to have you come back. And do, do this again because this is so important. Yes. And and you're, we're you know we're just doing a sort of a, a survey here, a survey course in, in yes. CCHRO, led by Cheryl and. <laughs> this is a Anna primer. Marie. This is a primer on your rights to uh, fair housing. Right. So any individual 
uh, has a right to fair housing. When you go to try to get an apartment or you go to try to purchase a home, when you're steered away from certain communities because of your protected class basis, which is your immutable trait, who you are as a person that you can't help being, right? I could run around this studio for hours and hours and hours. I'm not going to run the color off of my skin. I'm not going to. I'm not going to run around and run around and suddenly I'm going to run the curl pattern out of my hair because I am a woman of color, right? And that these are immutable traits. These are the things that make me who I am. So I should not be treated disparately, differently, poorly because I belong to these protected classes. So if you have, if you're someone with children and you're looking for an apartment, or you have a Section 8 voucher. In the state of Connecticut, some landlords think, I don't have to take Section 8. I don't want to deal with the government. Eh, eh, you're wrong. I tried a case, and it went to the Connecticut Supreme Court, and the Connecticut Supreme Court says that in the state of Connecticut, if you are a landlord, you cannot refuse to rent because of someone's lawful source of income. Now, is Section 8 a lawful source of income? Absolutely. Yes, it is. <laughs> So landlords need to be aware of that, but you, the people, need to be aware of that as well because we get complaints where uh, you have people who are brazen and they'll be like, we don't want children. You know, it's a second floor apartment. We'll hear your kids running around. We don't want, we don't want uh, children in the apartments because it'll, it'll mess up, you know, the, the apartment for the people living against the law. We look at four kinds of evidence, and I'm just going to say this really quick in my Good. primer well, version. Do. Yes. We, <laughs> no, I mean, just, I want you to we, say it. Yes, <laughs> we have direct evidence, we have comparative evidence, we have pattern evidence, and we have statistical evidence. So when you file your complaint with us, we're looking at all these types of evidence. You're not alone. You're not on your own. We have intake people who will assist you in filing your complaint. And it's important. You have to stand up and you have to show out in order to fight discrimination. And it can be difficult. You can call us at 1-800-477-5737. That's 1-800-477-5737. Nicely done. Excellent. Beautiful. Muchas gracias. Anyway. That is great. That is, that is, that is what we need to hear about uh, housing and uh, discrimination. And uh, we also need to take a look at whether or not we can finally change uh, the attitudes of many of the communities uh, that resist the affordable housing, that resist uh, subsidized housing. Because one of the things that I think they see is when we don't have good enforcement in Hartford or Waterbury or Willimannock, they see that we're not able to keep up with everything because the tax benefits to the local community aren't there, that we need to make sure that the state subsidizes the towns that have the housing. They need to look good, and they need to have the chance to make sure we look good, and then they can say, boy, we can do that, and we'll look good too. And so some of it has to do with the, the, the fact the state hasn't provided the good funding for all the places that do the good work. I mean, here we are, a serving community. We serve the region. We serve the state. Harford serves the state. Harford serves their region. They have the shelters. They have the housing. They have the capital in Harford. <laughs> and they don't, the capital doesn't pay any tax, just saying. And uh, so when... <laughs> like, like, like a lot of other entities. Mm -hmm. and, yep. uh, and, and there's and, no and, pilot. And, 
And exactly. And there are a lot of legislators that mean very well, but they keep saying, well, let's just take this group and that. We're just going to take them off the property tax roll. And, and this one, too. And then, you know, you want to take care of the people, but you also want to take care, make sure that that particular town isn't the only town that's taking care of the people. They have to get that subsidy from the state in order to make sure if you want to have tax-free, property-free tax, rather, uh, go ahead, but make sure the state subsidizes it, or make sure the feds subsidize it in those circumstances. That's a real heavy lift, let me tell you. There's a lot of, <laughs> as, as you, as we, everyone in this room knows, there's enormous resistance to building any housing in most suburban towns for uh, families with children. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they don't want to, you know, because they figure it's going to cost money in school and whatnot, and uh you know that's that, that's that's one reason. It could be discrimination as well. But you know, there, you know, as you know, there's multiple reasons as to why people do things, and that's one of one of the difficulties you have in proving discrimination. You know, okay, there's there's discriminatory effect, there's discriminatory intent, all that kind of stuff. I dealt with yes. that in the in the Manchester case, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, it was a long time ago, and I've, I've forgotten more than I've, I've learned since then. But <laughs> you got it right. The discriminatory effect. The yeah, discriminatory but 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 intent. you know the. Uh, but but I, but I certainly right. do know, I see, you know, in, in all these towns are, uh, that are not uh, urban center towns, as I call them, uh, you know, every time a, somebody, a developer comes in with a proposal for housing, you know, there's resistance. I know there's 8-30G, which is helpful, but it's not a panacea. And, 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 and you know, the, the communities do resist. And, and uh, um, you know, and it, a lot of it has to do with they don't want children because they don't want to pay for the, their educations. And. It, that is a tough lift. I mean, I, I believe that the main goal of all agencies like yours, like yours and, um, it, it, well, this is my, my own personal view, is children. It's got to be children. Children, children, children. We, we, we must support our children. <clears throat> we must make them educa- educated and give them the opp- full opportunity to become educated because that is the answer to most of the problems we have in this country is education. Right. Education gonna, is the gonna, key. They're going to inherit our society. That's right. And I don't want uh, to have all of these deficits no. uh, when they are going to inherit our society. Yeah, so I don't want to have we, the kind of situation in, that we're having right now with this uh, this guy who's running for president who's been indicted in four different cases. And, you know, that's my opinion, my personal opinion. Right. But, but, you know, that's... It's, it's, Which we get to express, right? That's why we're here. It's very sad that we <laughs> have that situation. And what is speak. the basis of that situation? It's people out there in, in the community at large who just don't get it. And that's because they uh, yeah. weren't educated properly. And, and, and so education is key. Yes, it and, is. And, and one of the things that the CCHRO does in large part is educate the community. Educate the community by bringing these cases. You're educating the community. You win a case at the Supreme Court. It's a big deal because if you know that that case is the law of the state when the holding of the case is yes and it's it's almost like a class action and 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 that is so so important and which, what you're doing Anna Marie going out there and spreading the good word and is, is teaching people is, is is what it's all about and it's not easy it's painstaking but we mu- we cannot give up that fight we must continue to fight so that uh, people. Uh, um, are not ignorant. It's, it's it's a lot easier to be ignorant today than it was when I was growing up as a kid. Life was a lot simpler, or at least it seemed a lot simpler. Right. It's a lot more complicated now because you know, I if I need to use my uh, my computer or my phone for something special, I can't do it. I need to ask a kid. <laughs> anyway, we are winding down to our last two minutes. Oh, I'm taking and, up too much yeah, time. And here I want my... to make sure that our guests have a chance to summarize uh, what they're doing. We'll start with Anna uh, Marie Mitchell, and just a quick summary uh, for the, and then we'll go over to Attorney Cheryl Sharp. 
okay, um, there's a lot of things happening and we're actually, you know, getting out more in the community to actually educate, not only in English and Spanish and along with other languages. It's not only Spanish that we've translated into, there's other languages as the community needs them. We have some exciting things coming on. Coming up, we actually just did a um, equity study and he actually presented it at the state Legislature. Uh, legislator. You want to go into that share a little bit? Sure. We, we have this equity study and we have a disparity study. Again, thank you to the legislature for funding these uh, studies. Uh, the equity study has been released. The, the disparity study will be released, I believe, in March. And we're going to have a wonderful community access program coming up on May 1st at uh, the uh, legislature or uh, the state armory. armory. Um, and it, it's going to be wonderful because we're going to have buses coming in from Hartford, from New Haven, from Bridgeport, from Willamette. And we want the community to come and access all of the material related to the services that we as a state provide. Uh, remember that we want to breathe life into the voiceless so that they will stand up and be heard. That's what the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities is here for. Thank you so much to the two of you. I love the yes. banter back and forth. Yeah. We need an actual show on uh, network television because it's awesome. It's, yeah. it's amazing. It's amazing. amazing yeah, we're negotiating a contract with uh, what, M MSNBC. But, and I, was still, uh, I can't reveal the details. Don't forget to, don't forget to have us on. You're, you're, you're the first guest. You'll, you'll be on first. I cannot thank... Uh, <laughs> My co-host, Dennis O'Brien, and our very special guest this evening, uh, Attorney Cheryl A. Sharp from the Connecticut Human Rights and Opportunities, and Anna Mitchell, uh, who is the Outreach uh, Coordinator uh, for ed Bilingual Education. Uh, thank you both so much for being here, and we have to have you back because we just touched the surface. We want right. to get into the details. <laughs> so thank you so much, yes. and uh, tune in next week for another great show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. <laughs>